You're listening to Season 6 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a weekly podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam. For new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, we analyze all 43 years of Gundam, episode by episode and movie by movie, researching its influences, examining its themes, and discussing how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world, from 1979 to today. This is episode 6.13, Rave in a Cave, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan and assistant podcast keeper, a very honorable title. And I'm Nina, new to this run of SD Gundam, and I just invented a new Twitter game. It's like those prompts people post asking what movie should be remade with a cast of one human and every other role as Muppets. But instead of Muppets, it's SD Mobile Suits. Ooh. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 605 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks to our newest supporters, FK, Puffifer, and Tim H. As an independent and ad-free podcast, MSB is entirely listener-supported. If you enjoy this podcast, support us today by recommending us to your friends, becoming a subscriber, making a one-time payment, buying us research materials from our wishlist, or reviewing us wherever you listen to podcasts. Links to all of the different ways to support us are on our website, gundampodcast.com support. We're getting close to the end of Season 6, so before I introduce this week's episode of Gundam, I want to give you a preview for what's coming up. This week we wrap up SD Gundam Mark V, the last of the numbered SD releases from this era. And later in the episode we'll be addressing that infamous Gundam cryptid, Doozybots. Our next episode, 6.14, Somewhat Delightful, will be a wrap-up kind of episode where we look back at Season 6 and share our overall impressions, favorite and least favorite shorts, and, of course, our favorite SD mobile suits and characters. But First, we're going to take a week off to gather our thoughts and to give you time to submit questions or comments. Now, as always, we can't promise that we will respond to every question, especially questions that require any kind of research, but we will do our best. Please send your questions and comments by email to gundampodcast at gmail.com or to our new email address, hosts at gundampodcast.com. After that, we'll be off for our usual between-seasons hiatus, as we prepare to cover the movie Gundam F91, and catch up on about a million other things that have been on hold while we've had our heads down working on the podcast. I can't say yet how long this hiatus will last, but we will keep you all updated via our regular social media and Patreon pages. But this week we're covering the fourth segment of SD Gundam Mark V, Gundamu Goninshu no Mononoke Taiji, or the Gundam Band of Five, Ghost Extermination, released on October 25th, 1990. By the way, a few people have messaged us after last week's episode to mention that the version of SD Gundam Mark V that they have been watching has the shorts arranged in a different order. I believe this alternative order comes from the Marutoku special re-release, which, as far as I can tell, only exists to make things more difficult for me, personally. Ghost Extermination was written and directed by Takamatsu Shinji, with music by Kenji Kawai and Totsuka Osamu. The animation director and character designer was Yokoyama Akitoshi, and the background artist was Yajima Yoichi. Now, Nina's recap. A thin sliver of crescent moon hangs above the mountains at the edge of the abandoned town of Jaburo. The brothers Hyakushiki and Hyakimaru sneak gingerly past dark windows, crooked lanterns, and torn shoji doors, until the buildings begin to rattle and clatter. Pale, flame-like will-o'-wisps appear out of thin air, followed by a huge, shadowy mobile suit with glowing red eyes. They scream and run, later disguising themselves as monks and wandering the land 
they cannot bring themselves to return in disgrace, their mission failed. The next day, at the Gundam castle, the entire Gundam Band of Five kneel before the Great Shogun and the Shogundam. There are rumors of a ghost haunting the town of Jaburo, devouring anyone who approaches. The Great Shogun spent his childhood there and, concerned for the town, sent Hyakushiki and Hyakimaru to investigate, but they never returned. The Gundam Band of Five are tasked with getting to the bottom of these strange events. By the time they reach the town, the sun has set. Dogs bark and howl in the distance, and the already nervous Gundam Band jump at a dripping faucet, the wind through dry willow branches, and their own shadows. Just like when Hyakushiki and Hyakimaru were there, the buildings start to rattle, and the pale, flame-like will-o'-wisps materialize out of thin air. Frightened, they try to leave, but their way is blocked by the large, mobile-suit ghost with red eyes. It flies straight at them, and they dive out of the way, but the ghost hits a pebble in the road, and it clatters against Musha's helmet, giving him an idea. Use a flare, he tells Double Zeta, and the scene is illuminated to reveal a small army of Zako. Zako on the rooftops using fishing rods to control the will-o'-wisps, Zako in the buildings to rattle doors and windows, and Zako operating the mobile suit ghost, which turns out to be a wood and metal construct. But what is the Army of Darkness doing here? Faint sounds of music emanate from a mine entrance in the side of the mountain. Inside, the Zaku brothers eat and relax while their hench mobile suits search. A map, stolen from the Gundam castle, shows the location of the Great Shogun's buried treasure, and the Zaku brothers haunted Jaburo to scare away the townsfolk and hunt for the treasure undisturbed. In fact, they've just found a small wooden chest and have busted out the celebratory watermelon when the Gundam Band of Five arrive. Of course, the Gundams demand the return of their master's treasure, but the Zaku brothers take the chest and run deeper into the cave. Three Gundams stay behind to fight the Army of Darkness hench mobile suits, while Musha and Mark II chase the Zakus down a carved passage, following them in a minecart when they take off down the tracks. Through the dark and winding tunnels, they duck under wooden braces, speed down cliffs, and careen through roller coaster like loops. The Zaku brothers pull a lever as their cart goes past, switching the tracks and sending the Gundams back the way they came. But while they watch their enemies recede into the dark and gloat over their victory, they aren't watching what's ahead, and they crash straight into a wooden beam, losing hold of the treasure. Musha catches the chest. Stretched across the track is a string. The Zaku brothers' minecart pulls the string, that opens a cage, that frees a cat, that chases a mouse, and in doing so powers a treadmill, that turns a series of gears, that light a bomb, that explodes, that causes the whole mine to start caving in. Everyone, Zaku brothers, hench mobile suits, and Gundams, runs for the exit. Bringing up the rear, Shinzaku stumbles and drops the watermelon, and it bowls over his brothers and their helpers. They are near the exit, but still in the tunnel when the whole mountain comes down. The Gundam Band of Five return victorious, having solved the mysterious haunting of Jaburo and retrieved the Great Shogun's treasure. It's odd, though. The Great Shogun doesn't remember what he hid there. They open the chest to find... Beloved Childhood Toys. Amino Tetsuro-san, this is an intervention. You have to stop remaking Hanna-Barbera cartoons. It has gone on too long. This is clearly just Scooby-Doo. It's very important to me that you know that thanks to your research, by which I mean he watched an episode of Scooby-Doo this morning, I am going to have that theme song stuck in my head, possibly for days. How dare you put scare quotes around research in this context? How else was I to know that the plot of this episode is suspiciously similar to that of Scooby-Doo Season 1, Episode 4, Mind Your Own Business? Somehow, Tom reached the ripe old age of redacted without ever seeing a single episode of long-running cartoon franchise Scooby-Doo. I'm as shocked as you are, folks. Although it would never have occurred to me to actually go looking... <laughs> for a specific Scooby-Doo episode this was based on. 
I got somewhat conflicting vibes from the intro of this episode because first we have spooky ghost story, abandoned haunted town. Then with the opening titles, we get the horror movie scream and a splatter of blood, which is much more slasher film (laughs) than it is spooky ghosts. It is like the stock horror movie scream. Growing up in the 90s, I saw way more parodies of schlocky horror movies than I ever actually saw authentic, earnest, schlocky originals. So this sound effect shoots right into my brain and immediately makes me think, oh, we're watching a parody. This is another pretty enjoyable SD short. I liked this one. I would put this one in the category with the space mystery adventure or uh, fierce races where it's like, yeah, this is good. It's not extraordinary. They're not doing anything experimental. It doesn't have the like buoyant joy of a Picurienta Poresu, but it is well executed and it's fun. Glad I watched it. It's pretty well animated. They do reuse certain shots and certain footage, a lot of music, but the way that it's done doesn't feel cheap in the way it sometimes (laughs) feels cheap when they reuse things. It looks pretty good. It sounds good. So there's a moment, actually. uh, It's when the two sides are reintroducing themselves, sort of the trope for this kind of show even though these characters have introduced themselves every episode and even though they've met each other before they still have to do their transformation introduction sequence on both sides hilariously i'm pretty sure the zaku bros were trying to buy time by saying who are you because they know they have to do this long five-person intro sequence so oh that's clever yeah yeah i buy it so then the zaku bros do their intro sequence which is similar to one they did in a prior episode but kind of like upgraded There's a feeling of a stylistic shift when those introductions happen that is like when you're watching one of those, you know, serialized tokusatsu shows or whatever, and they do the stock transformation footage. It always feels a little bit off because it was filmed at a different time, probably with different equipment and maybe with a different film crew. Like the subtle difference of the film style is visible here. And in this case is artificial. It was created to give you that impression also introduces some new character elements that we didn't have before. The association of the Shinzaku with roses, a lady killer of both wealth and power. (laughs) I swear he had the rose in his teeth before, but this is much more explicit. And it's not just a rose in his teeth. It's also all the roses in the background around him when he does his introduction. I also wondered, his voice sounded new to me. Hmm. Sounds quite a bit younger than I'm used to hearing in these shorts or like possibly a woman cast in a man's role or something. I Mm -hmm. don't know. Shinzaku was played by Sasaki Nozomu, the voice of Hathaway Noah in Shara's Counterattack. I've said before that I think the SD Sengoku stuff takes a lot of its inspiration from what was the then recent Sunrise anime Samurai Troopers or Ronin Warriors, as it was called in the U.S., And by what I'm sure is sheer coincidence, Sasaki played a character in that show who was also named Shin. The introduction of the Zaku brothers also had the Konzaku taking a bodybuilder pose. (laughs) The Konzaku is the now Zaku, that's the Zaku 2, right? Yes. Tom is posing. Muscle pose. Someday research on bodybuilding in Japan. Probably sooner than you think. (laughs) A lot of the plot elements for this are entirely predictable. The reveal that these were actually childhood toys. Um, Nina called it like two minutes into the episode. The sequence where they get in minecarts and the minecarts turn out to be a roller coaster. And, you know, the sort of thing that shows up in every cartoon that's set anywhere near a mine. But still entertaining and well executed, right? Like. I remember when I was sure that the treasure was childhood toys, and it was when the Zaku brothers show us the map, and it's clearly drawn and written by a child. But I had some inkling from the moment that the great Gundam said, oh, I spent my childhood there. 
And yet it's still a really fun reveal when they open the chest and it's full of action figures and stuffed animals. The little axolotl toy. Actually, I was wondering when I saw that if there was like some vogue for salamander stuffed animals at the time, because they also show up in the Yakuza video games. There's a whole crane game mini game, and one of the plush toys you can win is a whole like family of axolotls. Huh. Yeah. The voice acting in that scene was particularly good because it's subtle, but you can hear the sort of vague disappointment in the voices of the Gundam <laughs> Band of Five when the great Shogun says, oh, thank you so much. This is so great. And they're like, yeah. <laughs> sure, sir. Whatever Ab you say, boss. Absolutely. They catch themselves, though. They restore the mask of feudal subservience. We are honored to have found your childhood toys again, my lord. I could not stop laughing at Onmitsu sneaking around the room, getting called out by the Shogundam, who has known he was there the whole time, and not being part of the rest of the episode. <laughs> I assume they couldn't get the voice actor. Or the Shinobi of Shinobi would simply not fit into this kind of story. That's Plus, fair. Gundam Band of Five, five members of the Scooby Squad. Mm. Mm? Mm? I especially appreciate that our extremely heroic characters are still scared witless by the sight of these ghosts. The sort of flame, will-o'-the-wispy ghosts are very common in Japanese folklore. The mobile suit ghost, less so, but <laughs> ghosts and spirits and like spirit possession are all part of Japanese folklore and mythology. And the Gundams are frightened, and one of them even suggests, uh, maybe we should just come back tomorrow. And then it's the tiny detail that the ghost must be corporeal because it hits a pebble that then ricochets off Musha Gundam's helmet that tips them off, wait a second, this can't possibly really be a ghost. I feel like there's a relationship between the ringing of a bell and exorcism. There is. And the pebble bouncing off of the metal helmet sounds a bit like a bell ringing. Oh, that's uh, true. There might be something there. I do love the opening to this, which is a very Scooby-Doo style opening of the Hyakushiki and Hyakimaru exploring the town, encountering the ghost and being scared absolutely out of their senses, running away. Uh, and then spending the rest of the episode in disguise, in shame. I haven't had time to look into it, but I wonder if there's anything more to the Hyakushiki's comment that they hate ghosts and bell peppers. Yeah, like that was... Is bell pepper a pun here, or are they spoofing on something else, or is it just meant to be silly? Someone's like, my yeah. dislikes are <laughs> bell pepper, ghosts. <laughs> <laughs> In the U.S., it's like a trope that kids hate broccoli or Brussels sprouts or carrots or pick a vegetable. You can make a joke about kids hating it. I wonder if bell peppers are like a stereotypical food for children to hate in Japan. When you think about this as coming from a, you know, a series of comics intended for children, it's not hard to imagine that kind of joke really resonating with the audience. Is this newly introduced plot thread of the Hyakushiki and Hyakimaru as wandering monks going to be an ongoing one? Is it going to be an ongoing gag in future SD Gundam Sengoku shorts? You know, that is a very good question, and I do not know the answer. I would assume yes, because it's funny. It is funny, and the monk outfits are pretty cool. And the wanderers are great characters for stories. Everyone knows this. Every culture knows this. <laughs> I feel as though the rest of what I have to say about this episode is a bit of a grab bag of things that I liked. <laughs> but uh, the sound effect for the Zako, who don't actually say any words, but make little like squeaky noises. <laughs> I think they might be repeating their names really quickly, kind of a Pokemon style. Zako, 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 Zako. Maybe. It didn't sound quite like that to me, but it could have been. Well, there's was... a lot of them all talking at once. Yes, it's... A... <laughs> there's a whole crowd of them. It's a cacophony. <laughs> 
It's great. They're, they're wonderful. They're my favorite again. Oh, they've displaced the little blobby guys? Yes, they have. You just like little guys. I do. I really do. I do really like them with the fishing poles for the little fake ghost flames. And rattling the doors and pushing and operating the big fake ghost, like everything about that yeah. is just wonderful. The entirely gratuitous Rube Goldberg machine at the end of the episode that it winds up destroying the mountain. I don't know if you recognized, but the small cat that gets released as part of the Rube Goldberg machine is one of the ones from the Army of Darkness Manor. Right, the child lion. And finally, that you cannot have the Zaku brothers in a short without having a watermelon, and that watermelon somehow causing their downfall. <laughs> For a change of pace, this time it was because they dropped it and it bowled them all over, rather than while cutting it, they somehow cut something else that's more important and ruin everything. This is just like when the three orphans in First Gundam use Haro's defense mode to stop one of the escaping prisoners by rolling it at his feet like a bowling ball. What did you think about the reveal of the Dark Emperor at the end? Meh. Meh. Mysterious baddies are never as cool when you get to see them in the clear light of day as they are when they're shadowy and mysterious. It's always a letdown. What if the Dark Emperor turns out to be full of Zakos? That I would be on board with. But see, that's the thing about those kinds of reveals. For me, they work much better when they're funny. Mm. Think Wizard of Oz. Mm -hmm. <laughs> or, uh, well, I guess most of the examples I'm thinking of for this are probably riffing on the Wizard of Oz. But where you think it's this big, powerful, mysterious whatever, and actually it's just a little guy with a lot of funny equipment and disguises and special effects. You just like little guys. I do. Yeah, it is very rare that the reveal of something horrifying can actually equal what your imagination can project into a mystery space. I remember reading about the production of the first Alien movie uh, and all of the trouble they had with the alien suit and figuring out how to get somebody to wear it, how to shoot it. And initially, they wanted to show much more of the alien, to show it more clearly, but ultimately decided partly for practical production reasons, but partly for artistic ones, that it worked much better the less of the alien you saw. Mystery is frightening. It builds up a kind of internal tension, and revealing the mystery breaks the tension. The other thing about the end of this episode, before we go to the end credits and the two monks walking down the beach, the Dark Emperor by way of punishment or to frighten them, shoots off some missiles at the Zaku brothers, and they are yelling, we're sorry, as they get sort of thrown into the air by the explosion, and the video cuts while they are in the air with the explosion around and behind them. The three Zaku brothers are blasting off again, Pokemon style. Also, now, in 2022, feels like a classic action movie shot the explosion behind your heroes mm -hmm. thing. But how old is that? That at least goes back to the action movies of the 80s. So by this point, 1990, it was a well-worn action movie trope. I'm glad you raised that final scene because there's a bit in it that I found especially rich. Is when one of the Zakus is like, no, no, your majesty, we would never use your image without your permission which is rich coming from this gang of parodists, from Amino and his crew who have just been remaking Hanna-Barbera cartoons for the last two years. Come on, man. Maybe that's the gag. <laughs> it's a good gag. Don't let my chastising tone of voice convince you otherwise. I appreciate it immensely. Do you think the assumption on the side of the Japanese producers of these cartoons was that nobody in the United States would ever see them? or come to know that they were effectively copies of American-made cartoons? That it didn't matter because how would anybody ever find out? Um, that is kind of my assumption. Certainly there are a lot of reasons to think that decisions were being made on the assumption that this stuff was never going to leave Japan. For example, back in Zeta when they used those Neil Sadaka songs for the intros, 
it seems very likely that they got legal permission to do that in Japan, but didn't bother getting licenses to export it to the rest of the world. And there's a few other examples I can think of where they played sort of fast and loose with the rules on the assumption that it was just, you know, it was what everybody did and it was going to be fine and no one would ever notice. I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit because really we ought to be talking about this next week when we do our wrap-up episode on SD Gundam, but this is the kind of thing that if it weren't Gundam, probably would have just been forgotten. If it were not attached to this other, like, big, famous, landmark, long-running series, uh, these kinds of quickly made, kind of funny parody shorts would just be forgotten relics of the OVA era. One does not get the impression that they were made to last. I hope this doesn't come off snobby, but my assumption is that most TV is made on that principle that, yes, it should be entertaining and yes, it should be well done, but with exceptions, of course, but a lot of the people making it don't consider it high art. They don't necessarily think this is going into the canon of classic animation that people are going to watch and talk about and study for decades to come. Uh, it's content to fill out a schedule or they need some new tapes to release this spring or they need filler for, you know, there are business pressures on the creation of these cartoons and there are artistic pressures. As we saw in Picurienta Poresu, like what a weird little cartoon, right? I'm sure nobody at Sunrise made them do that. That was them trying something out. But at the same time, we know there were financial constraints. We know there were time constraints. This is really true of all artistic output, but there's just so much of it all the time that all any of us who make art can hope for is our little blip, our little emotional reaction in whoever we manage to get our art in front of before it's replaced by the next thing. And that feels more true now. I mean, it probably is more true now because of the decentralized way we distribute our art. But it was definitely true then, too. SD Gundam Mark V was sort of the end of this run of SD Gundam under Amino Tetsuro's supervision. But there is one remaining artifact from this era that we have to talk about, or at least that I want us to talk about, and that's DoozyBots. DoozyBots is a remarkable little thing. DoozyBots is just a couple minutes long. It's a trailer for a show that was never made. We know it was created as promotional material by Sunrise, and we know that it was shopped around in the United States looking for a, a TV network, a local partner, who would help to produce the show and put it on TV in the US. It seems as though it was probably circulated at TV trade shows around 1990, that none of the US companies were interested, and so the idea died on the vine with some VHS copies of this promotional video then falling into the hands of anime video collectors who kept it in semi-circulation for the years that followed. DoozyBots remained a kind of open secret within the US anime community up until around the mid-2000s when it was uploaded online and became much better known within the English-speaking fandom around 2007. It was, however, virtually unknown in Japan until around 2014, when a video uploaded on YouTube broke through the language barrier and got shared a bunch by Japanese fans online. And the reaction to it was pretty incredulous at the time, which is about what it deserves. Without saying too much more about it, uh, here's Nina with the recap. I have to preface this recap with the fact that the terrible writing is not mine. I'm quoting the video. I added a bit of my own content, but all those worst bits are from the video. A likely excuse.
there's a spectacular new comedy action series coming in fall of 1991. Hey kids, get ready for Doozy Bots! When the Clydesdale High Science Club was asked to a secret meeting at Professor Doozy's home laboratory, they had no idea they'd be asked to volunteer for an incredible experiment. Outside the lab, Tagalong and the obnoxious Brandon were snooping about. Professor Doozy had invented the amazing transmogrification process that can take the intelligence of humans and transfer it into specially designed robots. These Doozybots were needed to combat a defective generation of robots that have accidentally escaped from the professor's laboratory. These misguided robots had to be stopped before they carried out their mission to build an army and rob the world of fun. But these sinister robots were already on the march. The baddie mobile suits you know and love are accompanied by Herculon, a sort of ostrich-shaped bot, as they attack a power plant, causing a blackout in the nearby town. They route all the power through Turculon, who then lays eggs that hatch into more mobile suits. Their army is growing! But with their SD robot bodies and human intelligence and skills, the Doozybots defeat them all before transforming back to their human forms. Get ready for this exciting, beautifully animated half-hour series! As I mentioned before Nina did the recap, we know very little about this. There's no credits, and so we don't know who is responsible for making it. We don't know exactly when it was made. We don't know who voiced it. It's dubbed in English, but we don't know who was responsible for that. We believe that the idea was essentially SD Gundam toys are very popular. They're selling like hotcakes in Japan. We need to sell them in the United States. We need a TV show to do that, so let's make something similar to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, or Transformers, or He-Man, or any number of Japanese animated Western-produced toy commercial cartoons in the 80s mold. As far as I'm aware, no one who was actually involved in the production in English or Japanese has ever spoken publicly about it. However, there is one piece of information about this that I don't think is commonly known, which is that in 2014, when the Japanese side of Gundam fandom became aware of this, it seems that Takamatsu Shinji, who was a Sunrise veteran and worked on SD Gundam, tweeted about it. And he said, even though it looks like a terrible fan-made parody, it is authentic Sunrise animation, I didn't work on it. It was made next door while I was working on War in the Pocket. I wonder who leaked it. <laughs> now, I say it seems that Takamatsu tweeted that because all of Takamatsu's tweets before 2020 have been deleted. However, some obsessive fans have saved them, which is a vaguely creepy thing to do, and I feel kind of conflicted about it, but it's also the only source for this tweet. I was going to say, boon to researchers. Exactly. So, assuming that this is a real, authentic Takamatsu tweet, we can make a couple of educated guesses based on it. We know that the production for an average episode of anime takes about two to four months. Takamatsu said that Doozybots was produced while he was working on War in the Pocket. Takamatsu worked on episodes one, three, and five of War in the Pocket. But by the time he was working on episode five, he had also started working on SD Gundam. So probably, Doozybots was produced while he was working on episodes 1 or 3. That's a fairly narrow window. Episode 1 came out in March of 89, and episode 3 in May of 89, which means he could have started working as early as, let's say, December 88 or January 89. His first contribution to SD Gundam was those super limited shorts from SD Gundam Mark III, the first one of which came out in July of 89, but given that they're super limited shorts, probably didn't require the full two to four month production period. This means that the window when Takamatsu was working on 0080, but not SD Gundam, runs from about December 88 to May 89. If we assume that Sunrise would have put somebody already familiar with SD Gundam in charge of this series, that narrows down the possibilities somewhat. We know that Amino Tetsuro was working on SD Gundam at that point, 
But the style of Doozybots is very different from the stuff that he did. And given his limited experience with big shows, it seems like he wouldn't have been a great fit for being in charge of Doozybots. Plus, he would have been busy making SD Gundam at the time. The other possibility, then, is the director Sekita Osamu, who directed those very first SD Gundam shorts, the ones that accompanied Char's counterattack in theaters. Sekita Osamu has not said anything about working on Doozybots, and unfortunately he passed away a few years ago. But, looking at his career, there is a gap in his filmography in the spring of 89. He finished up his work on Samurai Troopers in March of 89, and then his next project, a Captain Tsubasa OVA, didn't come out until July 89. Now, there are lots of possible reasons for a person to have a gap in their resume like that. He might have been taking a break. He might have been working on some other uncredited project. But he might have been working on Doozybots. Now, that's all speculation, so don't quote me on it, but I think it's at least possible enough to be worth mentioning. You mentioned that this other director had sort of floated, gee, I wonder who leaked this. And if I had to guess, I would actually think that either a tape had mistakenly been left in the United States, it wasn't supposed to be left behind, but it was, and so somebody in the U.S. got their hands on it, digitized it, and leaked it. Or it was a screener given to a studio or a, some U.S. company that stayed in their archives for decades until somebody found it, digitized it, and leaked it because it's so weird. I have seen pictures of VHS copies hand-labeled in the collections of some like old-school U.S. anime fans. Mm. My guess is that probably some of those initial screener copies from those trade shows were duplicated again and again and again until there were enough copies in circulation to keep it alive. The video quality on YouTube is atrocious. It's kind of exactly what you would expect, actually, from a VHS that was copied multiple times in the early 90s and then digitized in the early 2000s. I don't know if there are better copies floating around in private collections, if they are someday going to surface and we'll get to see Doozybots in all of its glory, but uh, I, I kind of hope so. People are constantly finding odd treasures in the archives of various like film companies and mm -hmm. TV companies. At the same time, tapes deteriorate pretty quickly. It's not a particularly hardy medium, but there's a chance there's a cleaner copy out there somewhere. Yeah, yeah. If you're out there and you have a clean copy of Doozy Bots, or for that matter, if you know anything about it, contact us, please. We'll even keep you anonymous. <laughs> we just really want to know. Inquiring minds want to know. But to talk about the actual content of Doozy Bots oh instead gosh. of its mysterious production history, in an article about it, prominent anime writer Mike Toole commented that uh, it basically is a synthesis of all the worst aspects of 80s cartoons. It's the blandest, most formulaic junk. The plot is one I've seen a million times, from the old D&D cartoon to Street Sharks. A group of teenagers participate in or are accidentally exposed to a science experiment or magical anomaly and end up in a different set of bodies with the power to fight evil. Except this one doesn't even go so far as saying fight evil. <laughs> this is part of what I mean when I call it bland. They describe the robots they're fighting as misguided and planning to rid the world of fun. Yeah. Like what? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the basic plot of scientist creates robots, robots go rogue, scientist has to create more robots to stop the first group of robots, that's Mega Man. It feels so removed from the Gundam lineage. We have the core shows, which are actually quite serious at times. Even Double Zeta <laughs> is a heck of a lot more serious <laughs> than this. We've got SD, which is goofy and silly, but is obviously intentionally goofy and silly. And then we have this, which seems to want to be kind of silly, but not completely, and want us to kind of take it seriously, but there are no stakes. And 
They didn't think Americans would relate to protagonists who were just robots, so they also had to be teens. There are a couple of young kid sidekicks who don't do anything. They are introduced in the teaser, sneaking into the mansion and do nothing, and then appear again at the <laughs> end, just for the heck of it. Look, I've watched enough of these shows to know exactly what they do in this show. They accidentally cause problems that the main cast has to fix. I'm fairly positive the annoying sidekick Tagalong, the younger one, I think he's based on Gary Coleman from Different Strokes. Like, visually, I think that's where that character design came from. I thought he looked super familiar. Was there a Different Strokes cartoon? Or some other cartoon made from a black sitcom that he might have just been ripped from? There was, in fact, The Gary Coleman Show, made by Hanna-Barbera. What's more, I'm fairly certain Professor Doozy, the mad scientist, is just Doc Brown from Back to the Future. There's one girl, there's one black guy, he's also their one disabled person, he's in a wheelchair. That is his only characteristic. Everyone else is affiliated with some sport or other, except for him. The black guy who uses a wheelchair is also the one who gets put into the gun tank, which is a whole universe of mobile suits out there that have legs. And it's not as if Professor Doozy's machine transforms a character into a mobile suit that is similar to them. It transfers their, like, essence into a pre-built robot. You didn't have to build the gun tank. It's not even that popular of a suit. What is it doing here? So the decision to put him in a mobile suit that rolls around feels very lazy and kind of offensive. There is the cheerleader who is also a cowgirl. Yeah, with a terrible southern accent. There's the football player, quarterback, main character, handsome white dude who kind of looks like Tom Cruise. And then there's the radical surfer skateboarder. The hippy-dippy, long-haired guy, yeah. As must have been required by law in the 80s and 90s. And there is one fat guy who is obsessed with food, which ah, gross. right, of course. But they don't let that detract from the fact that he is actually really good at his sport. Mm. Like, he's fat, but he's also very good at hockey. It's not like, here is a hapless doofus. He is a little bit of a hapless doofus, but yeah. when they're actually fighting the robots, it's like, oh, boy's got skills. Okay. Sure. But in the intro, he like, you know, he's the goalie, so he stops the hockey puck. But in the process, all of his like McDonald's combo meal food spills out of his jersey. All of his hidden snacks, chocolate bars. Just the laziest, stupidest, haha, fat person like food joke they could have done. And you just know that if this had been picked up as a series, they would have made him the butt of some kind of fatness or food based joke in every single episode. None of these characters have any personality whatsoever beyond whatever, like, sport they're affiliated with. That's it. And the... God, the... When the... Sorry. I just need a moment. <laughs> Pull yourself together, man. When the narrator is like, lots of fun and lots of teens... Oh, he's not saying lots. He's saying bots. He says bots of action, bots of fun, and bots of kids. Are you kidding me? I'm almost positive Get he's out. saying <laughs> bots. Get out. And bots and not lots. Oh, it's bad. Oh, gosh. Um, where was I going? <laughs> I was going somewhere. You know, for such a short video, they really packed a lot of bizarre choices into it that I almost don't know where to go next. The random monkey sidekick from the lab? You gotta have a random monkey sidekick. It's a cartoon made in the 80s. The hockey player's mobile suit is another bizarre choice. He's given a gun cannon, but it's not the original classic gun cannon. It is a gun cannon heavy custom, a very obscure MSV gun cannon that briefly appeared in Zeta Gundam. You know, for a cartoon made in the late 80s, early 90s, it already feels dated. The intro in particular felt like it was trying to be groovy and 70s, and I'm not sure the early 90s are far enough along that that was nostalgic and fun yet. It just <laughs> feels old. Speaking of things that feel dated, 
Doozybots apparently is a phrase that gets said by some Italian-American people, not so much anymore, but it was more common in the past. It's like an American mutation of an Italian phrase that I'm sure I'm going to get this wrong, but is like, tu sei pazzo? Tu sei pazzo! Thank you, old Italian film clip on YouTube. In the US-Italian diaspora, this morphed to sound more like doozy pots, and to an American ear sounds like doozy bots. Huh. And specifically, the term doozy bots is now old enough and rare enough that if you search for doozy bots online, you just get the Gundam thing. I didn't even put the connection together until I saw a bunch of Japanese fans being like, why did Sunrise name this cartoon after this weird Italian phrase? Why did a bunch of Japanese fans know a weird Italian phrase? Mysteries within mysteries. I had wondered before your intro whether Doozybots was actually produced, like mostly animated, in the United States by a company that had licensed Gundam characters from Sunrise, in particular because of that sad cut-rate Itano Circus mm. <laughs> moment when the baddies attack this power plant. It's like, oh, that's, that's just sad. Yeah. You're trying so hard and yeah. it's so bad. Yeah, if it didn't have that Sunrise copyright at the end, and if Takamatsu hadn't said he was aware of it when it was being made, but he didn't work on it, then I might have uh, agreed with that supposition. There are moments in it when it really seems like this was done by somebody who doesn't actually know Gundam. In particular, when the um, there's a Yacht Doga on the baddies side, and at one point it shoots its funnels as missiles and they like hit and explode, which is not what those do. Incorrect. But at the same time, having new little mobile suits hatch from quote unquote eggs that look an awful lot like gacha capsules is straight out of Picurienta. Even if in this one, rather than having a mobile suit do it, they decide to create a turkey robot named Turculon. Uh, don't even know how to respond to that. <laughs> I have no response to that. Turculon the mighty. Maybe they thought Americans were turkey enthusiasts? Had they been reading a biography of Benjamin Franklin? But then there are also moments when it seems really clear that whoever was making this was intimately familiar with these mobile suits, because the skateboarding surfing guy transforms into a rigazi, and at one point his skateboard surfboard transforms into a hang glider, and he glides around on it just like the back weapons system that the rigazi uses. That's too right to have been made by somebody who doesn't know this stuff. I have to conclude that this was just what Sunrise at the time thought Americans would like, which is deeply insulting <laughs> as a person who was an American child when this would have been on TV. Would I have watched it? Yes. Would I have liked it? Probably. You definitely would have wanted Toys of the Robots. I definitely would have wanted Toys of the Robots. Next time on episode 6.14, Somewhat Delightful, we wrap up season 6, discuss our impressions of SD Gundam as a whole, answer listener questions, and say goodbye to this odd little interlude in Gundam history. This served no purpose, but nevertheless. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Nina and Tom, in scenic New York City within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is A Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music is Olivia by Hyson. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at Gundam Podcast, or by email to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. And thank you for listening. I don't know, Nina, is it ever going to be safe to share wrong Gundam opinions with the world again? I mean, wrong opinions like, Neo Zeon's doom was sealed the moment Haman Karn decided to prematurely split the celebratory watermelon. If people don't share wrong Gundam opinions like that, then they're just going to keep building up inside 
until something terrible happens. You forgot one character that I kind of forgave them for. The mobile suit turkey? I'll also that, but... <laughs> have we checked whether there's a Hanna-Barbera series that they might have been copying here? Not yet. Tom has baggage about sporty people, can you guess? Hey, I was a jock. <laughs> Eventually. <laughs> Eventually. <laughs> It's inaccurate. It's not canon. As a person who was an American children, now that would have been a good place to end this, but I have one more complaint that I have to raise, which is even in this episode, they still have the characters pair off for thematically appropriate duels at the end. to be a Japanese salamander, Tom. Well, okay. (laughs) 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 There is a mobile suit that the fandom sometimes refers to as the bell pepper, but it's not going to be introduced for a long time. So this is definitely not about that. Don't even know why I brought it up. To remind the listeners of your Gundam cred... (laughs) That's true. I always need to be reminding the listeners of my Gundam cred. Maybe I was just doing it to make sure that we'd have enough good outtakes this week. We were a little light last week. I'm doing this on purpose. (laughs) To torment the listeners. well off the rails now yeah what? unlike unlike the minecart <laughs> what is what is going on with you <laughs> <laughs> i'm having fun we know they weren't being released on air on television since you mentioned that i do want to point out a while back you asked whether the sd shorts were ever released on television and it seems like they were years oh. later They were broadcast on television in, like, 1993 as a special. That could also be a good ending. It could be. Yay. 